uh, verses 4 through 10, but now we're talking about being victors over the devil. Uh, there are many folks who are saved, as saved can be, but continue to lose battle after battle to sin, which we will continue to struggle and fight that fight with sin until we put off this flesh and enter glory. However, we also lose far too many battles to the devil, or we walk in so much fear of, of these things that we lose our victorious, victorious uh, stand and we li- lose our victorious life that we're supposed to live. Our victorious Christian life doesn't start when we enter heaven. It starts the moment that you're saved. You are now uh, a victor in Christ because he has conquered sin, death, hell, the grave, and, and all of these things for us because of what he's done and what he has accomplished. And so in Christ, those of us who know him, those of us who are in him, those of us who are abiding in Christ, we too are victors over the devil. I want to read verses 8 through 10 just so we can see kind of where we're going today. And, uh, and let's look here. It says, he that, in verse number 8, he that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for, he, uh, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Now, there's a lot going on here, and so we need to look here, first of all, those who are not in Christ or those who are not abiding in Christ are of the devil. There is this horrible, false narrative, false ideology of the universal fatherhood of God. And it is, one, it, it, at, at worst it's blasphemous and, and it, at best it's just not true. Uh, we are born in our sinful nature and sinful condition separated from God. He is not our father and we are of our father the devil when we are lost and uh, without Christ. We have to understand that the world, while they would say that we are all God's children, we would look spiritually and biblically and say that the vast majority of the world today are not his children, but rather they are children of their father, the devil, who is the father of lies, a father of sin, if you will. John, up to this point in this book, has been dealing with antichrist, false teachers, who truly are devilish in their pursuit to misrepresent Jesus and his church. There have been Multi, uh, uh, a multitude of different folks that we've talked about, especially with the Gnostics during John's day, who have had false views of sin, false views of Christ, false views of God, false views of what a Christian's supposed to be like, false views of, of, of every sort of doctrine you could possibly have. And so in this, John has been combating this to show, one, those who are truly in Christ, you are victorious over sin and over the devil, and that you are not to be associated or to live according to those things any longer. And furthermore, as he's doing this, he's about to show us, as the, the passage before, the, rather the few verses before, he showed us the severity of sin. Now he's about to show us the origin of sin, if you will. And now we could say, as we look at this, well, what Adam, the first one? Well, sure, that's how we get plunged into sin. Uh, as we are now imputed the sinfulness of Adam at the moment that we're born. However, we're going to see that really the first sinner that there was, was the first rebel, uh, is the devil himself. Now look at this. Uh, Thatcher writes, John's dualism comes through strongly here in the absolute contrast between God, Satan, righteousness, sin, love, hate. There could be no friendly differences or agreements to disagree. The Antichrist, by leaving John's doctrinal boundaries and stepping outside his fellowship, show themselves to be children of the devil. Remember back just a, a little bit ago, a, a chapter ago, in, in chapter 2, 
the reason why there were some who left and who were called antichrists? It's because they believed and lived out false doctrine, false teaching. But why, or really, you could even see, what is believing false teaching or false doctrine? It is believing the devil, is it not? Where does false doctrine come from? We don't just make it up ourselves. It comes from Satan. Satan was the first deceiver. Satan was the first uh, televangelist, if you would. <laughs> Satan was the first, uh, first false prophet. He was the first one there in the garden. What happens? Adam and Eve are doing pretty good. They've got one law, one rule to follow, and they're following it. We don't know how long they're in there and following it, but we do know that they're following it, at least up to this point. And what happens? Satan comes, and Satan comes as a preacher. And you'd say, well, no. Yeah. What does Satan do? He comes to Eve and he preaches a message and he says, did God really say? Is it really that bad? Why would God withhold that one from you? And so that is exactly what Satan does then in the garden. And that's what he does all throughout human history. He is a preacher, a deceiver with his tongue, and he preaches a false gospel. He preaches an antichrist gospel. It is a uh, preaching that leads to destruction and death. It is a preaching that is anti-God, though it may seem good in some aspects. We've talked about this before. If you knew that there was a, a preacher who preached, uh, I don't know, 85% truth but 15% heresy, would you call him a good preacher? No. All right, thank you, Ed. Right? The rest of y'all, no. The answer is no. Right? You wouldn't. You'd tell him, get off that pulpit, right? Go get your heart right and come back when you got something better to say that's actually truthful. Right? We've got to see here that Satan has always been this way. Sin itself, as we see the, the contrast in these verses uh, of the difference between God and Satan, righteousness and sin and, and love and hate and all this, we, we find that sin itself is a very devilish thing, isn't it? When you sin against God, even though you are in Christ, what are you doing? Are you listening to God or are you listening to the, the devil? Right? You're listening to the devil. You're following back in the same suit and the same lineage of which you once come from, and we're no longer to be controlled. Matter of fact, God set us free from that, where we were under bondage and in slavery to our sin and to Satan's lies and false gospel. And then we're delivered to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of Christ. And so what happens is when we sin, what we're really doing is we're taking a dip in our toe back in the old kingdom, and, and that's not what we are called to do. That's not what we're supposed to do. Yet, that's what our sin truly does. Now, the origin of sin here, I want us to look. <coughs> Barclay writes, It comes from the devil, and the devil is the one who sins, as it were, on principle. That is probably the meaning of the phrase from the beginning, verse 8. We sin for the pleasure that we think it will bring to us. The devil sins as a matter of principle. The New Testament does not try to explain the devil and his origin, but it is quite convinced, and it is a fact of God, universal experience, excuse me, and it is a fact of universal experience that in the world there is a power hostile to God, and to sin is to obey that power instead of God. And so what John has done in the previous few verses, it has shown the severity of sin, and now he kind of alludes and adds more to that by showing us the, the real reality is that sin comes from the father of it, which is the devil. And that in order that when we do sin, <clears throat> we are doing devilish things. We are committing idolatry of our hearts. We are 
whether it's immoral or whatever the sin might be, we've, he's already addressed that sin is lawlessness. And now the, the devil himself is referred to as a, a man of lawlessness and all of these things. And, and that sort of kingdom of, of darkness is it's a lawless kingdom. It's a law-breaking kingdom. It's a rebellious kingdom. Not just rebellious to be, uh, for, for any sake, but rebellious against God and his kingdom. Remember what the devil did. The, the devil himself rebelled not just you know, against any old thing, but he rebelled against the holy God of the universe. He rebelled and, and brings forth a, a third of the angels down with him. I believe convincingly so, much like his, his preacher uh, sort of mentality of preaching and going, hey, follow me. Why? Because what does sin do? Much like this uh, Barclay just wrote, we sin because we think it's going to bring us enjoyment. Satan sins because that's all of who he does. He does it on principle. He does it because everything about him is sinful. So this also shows us something that before Christ, you and I will always do what is naturally devilish. Without Christ, you and I will naturally do that which is uh, against God's law, against God's rule. Even the most nice and saintly looking of church folk who are still lost and undone. Your heart might be that you go to church and that you wear the nice clothes or you sing the songs or maybe you're in a Sunday school teacher. But if you don't know Christ, the reason why you're going is to try to satisfy your own self. You're going for self-satisfaction. You're going for a consumerist mentality. You're going to try to uh, uh, do something. It, it's the wrong heart. It's the wrong motive. And now he, we continue on in this and see the author, that one, uh, one commentator writes, the author uses the present tense when speaking about the devil's sinning. And this shows that he is portraying it as an ongoing action which has persisted from the beginning. The devil's sinning from the beginning probably refers to Genesis 1 through 4, where the devil tempted the first couple and their sin spread to Cain, who murdered his brother, something which is hinted at in the fourth gospel, where Jesus says that the devil was a murderer from the beginning, John 8, 44. And Cruz writes this. And, and we see the progression, what the devil does, right? If sin is lawlessness, sin being lawlessness leads and points back to the devil who is the chief lawbreaker, if you will. Right? If anyone found it and was a source of sin, it certainly it could be pointed back. You can look back at Genesis, though, and what happens here. Hold your place there in 1 John. Turn back with me to Genesis 3. I want you to notice what happens, though. Just because the devil is the first to ever sin, or the first to bring about sin, or this idea of rebellion, I want you to know, as John talks about, and as James, and as many others talk about all throughout the Bible, we cannot then blame him for our own sin all right look at this over in genesis 3 after the fall happens it says in verse number 11 god is speaking he says and he said who told thee that thou wast naked hast thou eaten of the tree whereof i commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat and the man said the woman whom thou gavest to be with me she gave me the tree and i did eat well adam there blames god he says i was fine till you gave me that woman he blames the woman and he blames God. That's pretty bold of Adam. Then it says, and the Lord God, oh, excuse me, and the Lord God said unto the woman, what is it that thou hast done? And the woman said, well, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. It's not my fault. I don't know what he's blaming me for. Right? I was a good wife. I got tricked. It's not my fault. And then God comes to the serpent. It says, and the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go. And, thou, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. 
we see that we can try to play the blame game, but ultimately your sin is your sin. But what Satan does in his sinful condition or nature, if you will, as the father of sin, is that he continuously seeks to make sure, even if you are saved, that you do not live in victory over your sin or over him. Right? If you are continuously living in defeat as a Christian, right, you are truly born again and you're constantly walking around upset, uptight, disgruntled, right? Every little thing bothers you. You know what you're doing? You're giving every single victory to the devil. You are not living in victory. You're not living in the fact that then there's Genesis 3.15, which tells us that God will put enmity between the two seeds and that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. We have to understand that if we live in the light of the gospel, that we cannot help but live victoriously. Why? Because the, the Bible tells us clearly for those of us who are in Christ and abiding in Christ, that there is no more condemnation. There is no separation. That we are joint heirs with Jesus. And so why in the world do we continuously live? Every, every Christian that I think I have ever been in contact with, including myself, we always say, I want to live a victorious life. And there are a million books on how to live the victorious Christian life. But the best book about how to live the victorious Christian life is the Bible. We see that those who lived in victory lived by faith. They did not continue to go back to sin. They did not give place to the devil, but they continued to follow and to abide in Christ. Look at what happens here. As the devil continues to do this from the beginning, it is in this present tense in the sense that he is always seeking who he can devour. Like a roaring lion walking, even now. Right? I, I tell you, we, we have in our, our churches, you know, we'll, we'll sit and we come to church and everything is going good. But I want you to know, perhaps one of the most active people in a church building is the devil himself walking the pews, walking the aisles, and seeing who he can put doubts or discouragement in, seeing whose ears he can plug up, seeing who he can uh, lay before a trap or something to trip over. And I tell you this, if he's not in here waiting for you, he's just outside the doors before you even get to your car, We're waiting to see if he can give you uh, distractions, or waiting to see if he can bring about some sort of turmoil in your life. That's what he does. He knows he might not be able to get your soul, but if he can steal your victory, he'll be very happy. And the issue today that we are facing, it is an absolute pandemic of Christians living without victory. We sing <laughs> sometimes. right Now, I want to praise the Lord for a minute, though, that this is a singing church. We have a, a number of people who are very talented and, and help lead in song and things, but I love sitting up here for a number of reasons. One, it takes a lot less time to walk up here to preach, right? But two, I love sitting at the front because you get to hear people sing. It, it, and I love to hear a congregational sing. It, to, that's, that's what it's about, right? To hear the folks who, whether, can, whether they can sing or not, to, to praise the Lord. It sounds glorious. I, I can only imagine what it's going to sound like one day in heaven, the, the glorious sound and noise of which that will be. That's what church is, is for. But look, look what happens, though. You and I will sing a song like victory in Jesus as if we just got told that God is dead. We'll hold the hymn book. Heard an old, old story, right? It, it, it's lost its, its umph. We sing, oh, victory in Jesus, but we don't live in it. I tell you, that song would be even better if we were living in the victory that we have. 
if we could get a hold of the grip and the grasp of knowing that we are held by God, we are firm in Him, and He is within us, living in us and through us, and that we are to abide in Him, then we would live in victory. And imagine what the congregational singing would sound like if we were living that way. Then we would sing with gusto. We would sing with some heart behind it. Now, you know this, though. It's not about the ones who are up here singing. It's not even about us. It's, it's about our hearts collectively together. It is if your heart is not living in victory, then how can it sing who victory in Jesus? Our hearts are what God is wanting to give victory to, and He already has at Calvary. He already has the day that you were born again. Victory was given. So live like it. We have so much to be thankful for, so much to praise God for, so much to live for. And we often get stuck in the rut of this world. We get stuck and, and we fall into the traps and, and trip over ourselves or we trip over the things that the devil lays before us. This is what the devil does. He always has. So he might know our flesh, but we also know how he operates too, don't we? He lies. He deceives. He gives false hope. He gives false assurance. He gives false promises. And he never delivers. All he does is he offers this big, broad way that seems good. Right? It's, it's, got, it's the Candyland trail of Broadway. Everything is great and gumdrops everywhere, but really what it does is it leads to death. It leads to destruction. It leads to separation. That's what he wants. This is important. Uh, this is important because John is leading up to show the connection of sin and obedience, abiding and not abiding, and love and hate in the life of the believer. And you can see that down verse 10 is going to springboard into the next section. If we don't get this section right, how are we going to get loving our brother and sister in Christ right? If we don't get understanding that we are victors over sin and the devil, how can we then live in victory and help our brothers and sisters in Christ? We can't. We see then, though, this in verse 8. This is the great part of verse 8. He that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. Okay, well, we know that. We got that. We know how he works and operates. For this purpose... Meaning, because of this, for this reason, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. Do you know that that's what happens at Calvary? Do you know that that's what happens when the the tomb is still empty 2,000 years later? That we have victory because Christ has conquered. I saw recently that uh, it's been said that that Christ did not die a a victim on, on the cross, but rather died as a victor, conquering sin, death, hell, the grave, fulfilling the law, fulfilling the prophecies, showing that uh, God was satisfied to pour his wrath upon his son and then to accept this and to show his approval at the empty tomb and all that God has done through the gospel. Christ has crushed his foe. And one day, one day, every foe, everyone that has ever been lawless or rebellious or has come against God, in any way, shape, or form, will one day be crushed, destroyed, will be cast away, will one day be judged. John Stott writes, If the characteristic work of the devil is to sin, the characteristic work of the Son of God is to save. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The Greek, had to, the Greek text has works in the plural, for the devil's activity is manifold. His works include all those things which he has insinuated into the perfect creation of God in order to spoil it. Morally, his work is enticement to sin. 
physically the infliction of disease, intellectually the seduction into error. He still assaults our soul, body, and mind in three ways, and Christ came to destroy His works. Therefore, we have victory. If you are in Christ, the devil no longer has to control your mind. He no longer has control of your heart. He no longer has control or direction of your life. And if he does, then that's because either one, you're not truly born again, or two, you have given him place. You have given him the opportunity uh, by sinning or by not living in the victory of which you have already been promised and what you have already been given. He does this. I love what the the author includes here at the end. Right? Uh, Morally, he entices us to sin. Physically, he seeks about disease and destruction. That's what he does. Intellectually, he tries to seduce us into error. And so when John, a chapter ago, says that these antichrists have left the faith, it's because they didn't have the faith to begin with. And really, they're still of their father, the devil. And he says, we, we look at this, understanding the work of Satan is, is binding. Right? It, it binds us, and not in a good way. It binds us to sin. It binds us to him. It makes us a slave to his will. But Jesus breaks the chains of those things. Jesus breaks the chains to set us free, to live free. Who the Son set free is free indeed. We are not freed so that we would continue to go back to sin and put the shackles on. We are not uh, freed so that we would continue to go back to our old master or our old nature. We are freed to live for the captain of our soul, to live for the one who has bought and paid the price for our soul. We are no longer shackled to those things. But what happens, it would make no sense, would it? If someone was imprisoned, whether wrongly or rightly, for 30, 40 years, and they get let loose, they say, hey, you've done your time, and today you're out, right? Let's take the cuffs off. And they walk out, and then they say, you know, I just don't like all this freedom. I'm going to go back in and put the cuffs back on and the jumpsuit back on and, and go eat the, the bread and gravy, right? It, it, that that's, makes no sense, right? It, it's crazy. But that's what you and I do when we seek out sin. That's what you and I do when we don't abide in Christ. We choose bondage over freedom. We choose loss over liberty. Jesus has fulfilled all of this at the cross and He will bring it fully at His consummation where all His enemies will be cast away. One day, every enemy, every foe will be judged rightly and justly. And we see as well as the Scripture teaches us that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. One day, death will ultimately die. Death will no longer have a grip over anyone. Death will no longer uh, uh, haunt us. Death will no longer loom over our lives. Death is conquered in Christ. That's why those of us who are in Christ, to live as Christ and to die is gain. The worst thing that can happen to a believer is to die and go to heaven. This is why it is gain. There, there is nothing on this earth for us. We have nothing but heaven to gain. We should live in victory, if anything, just because of that. We, we might have the worst life possible. We might have everything taken away from us. We might be sitting in a pile of ashes, covered in boils. But if we are saved, then one day we're going to be delivered. So live in such victory. And it can bring us joy in times where we should not have joy. Or at least you would think. The world would say, how can you have joy when your motor blows up? How can you have joy when you lose a loved one? How can you have joy? We can because of Christ. Look at what Christ has accomplished. 
When we look to the cross, victory is there. When we look to the empty tomb, victory is there. When we look towards the heavens and we look towards our future, victory is there. And then we find this, though. He says that he might destroy the works of the devil, for whoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, we already addressed this issue of those who would say that it means that you will never sin again. All right, that's false. The idea here is that you would be continuous in that habitual lifestyle of sin, that you will be identified. If your life was to be identified by anything, it would be continue to be identified by, by sin. But there's two seeds of here. We, we have the two lineages. The one, we've got the lineage of the devil. And we've got the other lineage of, of faith. And I believe that to be a, 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 a biblical theo, theological framework for understanding the whole scope of Scripture. And if you want to understand that more, come to Genesis, all right? Because we're going to we get more into that. But the whole focus, all throughout the Bible, we find Christ redeeming his people. But we also find those who are not redeemed, they are children of the devil or lineages or seed of the serpent. Whereas those who are saved, who are regenerate, who are born again, they are children of God. They are children by faith, that lineage of faith. And notice he says, because he is born of God, and then in verse 10, in this, the children of God. You cannot be born on your own. You know that? Can't happen, right? It doesn't happen. It's impossible, right? There has to be a source, and it's not you, right? It comes from God. The spiritual birth is solely and completely defined and decreed and given by God and God alone. There is nothing that you and I can do to be born again. It is Christ who does this work. It is a, is a miracle the same way that a, a physical birth would take place. The baby doesn't birth itself. The baby does not uh, come all by itself. No, it, it, there's got to be, right, when, when, a, when someone loves each other, right, and the stork comes and all that stuff. Y'all know how this happens, okay? Yeah, pretend, right? We all, we're all are here, okay? We were all born in this world physically. But spiritually speaking, the same is true that it took God our Father to bring us this spiritual life, to be born of God, to be born again, and to be then called children of God means that something has taken place in this spiritual new birth. A spiritual new birth that John, uh, that John records with Jesus' con- conversation in chapter 3 of John with Nicodemus, that we have been born again born of God, that it is His work in us, that it is uh, He who is the origin. It is uh, this act of regeneration and this act of adoption. Perhaps one of the most forgotten yet most beautiful doctrines that there is in the Bible that we are now adopted. We were the children of the devil, weren't we? We've been adopted. Calvary has completed the adoption process. The moment you were born again, that we are now no longer the devils, but now we have a good father. We have a future home. We have a brother in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We have a God who loves us and has given himself for us, who is there for us, who has adopted us and given us the rights as his own child. John Stott writes, In this way, the two parts of verse 9 become exactly parallel each part consisting of a statement that the Christian does not or cannot sin, to which is added the reason for such an assertion. 
the implication of both is this. The new birth involves the acquisition of a new nature through the implanting within us of the very seed or life-giving power of God. Birth of God is a deep, radical, inward transformation. Moreover, the new nature received at the new birth remains. It exerts a strong internal pressure towards holiness. It is the abiding influence of God's seed within everyone who is born of God, which enables John to affirm without fear of contradiction that he cannot go on sinning. It means this, if you are truly saved, you will not continue to stay in such a lifestyle of sin. God saves you from it. He doesn't just forgive you for it, but He saves you from it. He saves you from its power. He saves you, you from its, its dominion and its rule over your life. Now we have a new nature. Now we have a new uh, focus, and a new desire, and a new hunger. And now we are characterized by righteousness and love. He says this, In this children of God are manifest in the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Notice the two, righteousness and love. Whoever do, doesn't do righteousness is not of God. Whoever doesn't love his brother is also not of God. So what would that mean then? Those who are of God, those who are adopted, those who are saved today. What does that mean about you? You have a natural desire to love God and to love your neighbor, and you have a natural desire and hunger for righteousness. If those two things aren't there, then there is no real salvation. And only a real salvation can produce those real fruits. Because without Christ, you will not have a hunger or a love for God, nor will you have a hunger or a love for righteousness. You might have a hunger and a love for trying to appear righteous, as the Pharisees did, but it is the new birth that brings about the ability and the hunger and the nature that then loves God, loves your brother, and lives for righteousness' sake. To be characterized by righteousness and love. David Guzik writes, both of these are essential. Righteousness without love makes one a religious Pharisee. And love without righteousness makes one a partner in evil. How do righteousness and love balance? They don't. We are never to love at the expense of righteousness. And are never to be righteous at the expense of love. We aren't looking for a balance between the two because they are not opposites. Real love is the greatest righteousness and real righteousness is the greatest love. The two go hand in hand. It is not that we've got to be a balanced righteousness or a balanced love, but rather it is that we love God and if we truly love God, then we will love righteousness and we will love them both completely and fully and we'll seek both completely and fully in all that we do. It will be the source, the driving force of your Christian life. Knowing God and abiding in God is what pushes us to love Him and to love our brothers when even they are unlovable and to then as well practice and live according to righteousness. We have this to close today. Every true believer who is abiding in Jesus must understand sin, fight sin, and live in victory that only Christ gives over sin and the devil. I want you to be encouraged today as we look back at verses 4 through 10 in this whole section that God has saved you and delivered you from sin and Satan. So now we are called to live and walk in the victory that is in Jesus. Today, do you have that victory? Are you truly saved? Or let me ask you this, for those who are truly saved today, 
Are you living and walking victoriously? If not, victory is just a prayer away. Victory is, is simply just asking God, Lord, help me to walk in victory today. And I want you to know it, and to be perfectly honest with you, how many days, a, a, a week, probably every day, that, that on my walk of asking God for forgiveness or asking Him to uh, help me during that day, to Lord, help me to walk in victory. Ask God for it, and I believe with all of my heart and on the Bible that He will give you and allow you to truly live in the victory that He's already given you in Christ Jesus. May that be said about those of Victory Way Baptist Church, that we live and walk in victory. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the victory that is found in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray, God, that you would help us all to live and to walk in such a way that we would love love you, we would love our our neighbors, we would love our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, that we would love and pursue righteousness and holiness. And Lord, that we would not give place to sin or the devil over our lives, but Lord, that we would live as victors. Lord, we thank you for what you've done. I pray now that you would prepare our hearts for this worship service. And God, that you would be magnified and glorified in all things that we say and do. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so y'all will take a pause for the cause. Any guys that want to come pray, y'all come on over.